Welcome to the podcast, Fibromyalgia Real Solutions with Amanda Love. My name is Amanda Love, and I'm a registered holistic nutritionist who works with those with fibromyalgia. And today's guest is Tracy. Tracy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So tell me, what is your backstory? So um, my story starts uh, from birth. So I was born prematurely. And as a result of that premature birth, uh, I was at the hospital for several weeks, my mom was told to go home. So there was some trauma there um, associated with separation from my mom. And then because she was sent home, uh, she was actually also given an injection. So her milk wouldn't come in. So then I did not get those benefits of receiving breast milk as an infant. So starting from just a few months of age, I had unexplained symptoms. I had rashes um, throughout childhood, skin problems kind of plagued me. So in addition to rashes, I always had itchy skin. Sometimes I'd get hives and nobody would have any idea why, including the family doctor. Uh, Something I remember having from a very, very young age onwards is chemical sensitivities. And so I remember my dad always had a company car and I don't even know if that is still done, (laughs) but he would have a company car. It would always be a new car. And so it gave off that new car smell. And that smell always made me feel sick. My mom's car, total old beater, and I was fine in it. I also in childhood started to develop seasonal allergies, allergies to animals, And I was also a mouth breather at night. So some people might be able to identify with that where they can breathe during the day, but at night they have to breathe uh, through their mouth. When my teens hit and I hit puberty and all of those great hormonal changes, um, I also developed exercise induced asthma and I had really, really painful periods. I also probably the most significant and annoying symptom of my life was that I developed eczema on my hands and it was blistering and oozing. And I would be plagued with that for the next 40 years. Um, You know, my symptoms sort of continued to get worse until I think I hit sort of my early 20s. And then life just kind of progressed, you know, fast forward through like travels and marriage and kids. And then in uh, my mid 40s, I actually went back to school to study nutrition. And so I studied nutrition, I finished that. So I'm a holistic nutritional consultant. Um, And I right away also became certified in a protocol called the GAPS diet. So you may have heard of GAPS um, as well, Amanda, but it's an acronym for the gut and psychology syndrome. And that diet is all about repairing the gut. And I did that protocol actually to help my youngest son who was adopted and had been really malnourished in infancy. And as a result had um, some cognitive issues because his brain hadn't developed. So here I was, I was a nutritional consultant. I was on this gaps diet. I was doing it with my son and I thought I was doing everything right. 
And I started to see some improvements in symptoms, but I also started to develop some new symptoms. One of those symptoms was urinary urgency. Not a lot of fun. If you don't know what it is, it is exactly what it sounds like. So when you have to pee, the urge comes on very, very strongly. And I would usually be out of the house when that urge came on. So if I was like in the neighborhood, I would be running home. If I was out with my car, I'd get in the car and I'd, you know, try to get home as quickly as I could. And I still can just visualize myself standing at the door like a little kid with my legs crossed, trying to hold my pee in while I was trying to get the door unlocked. And usually I would be getting my pants down. I'd be in the bathroom, getting my pants down and I would start to trickle pee before my butt could hit the toilet seat. So it was just, yeah, it was this incredible urgency. And I also developed nerve tingling, which was a bit disconcerting. And my family doctor, you know, didn't really have any suggestions. So that's what was going on with me. But at the same time, I was running my clinical practice as a nutritional consultant, and I was seeing clients with a condition that is called mast cell activation syndrome. And I started to suspect that that might be me, that I might have this condition as well. So I sought out a functional doctor that I knew could do the testing to make the diagnosis. And sure enough, uh, I have the, the acronym MCAS, M-C-A-S. So now here I was, I was a patient with MCAS and I was a nutrition professional trying to help people with MCAS. And because I had been working with clients who had it, I knew just how few resources existed and there is something called a low histamine diet that some people find helpful, but it is really not addressing the complexity of what's happening in the body with mast cell activation. So now my goal is to educate people and to create resources to help people who are struggling with mast cell activation syndrome. That was a long backstory. <laughs> No, that's great because you're, you're taking what you're going through and you're helping other people with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What exactly is it? Okay. So because it's a syndrome, it is a collection of symptoms. So any health condition that has that syndrome word attached to it is always some sort of collection of symptoms. And so it's a collection of symptoms that have at the root cause where mast cells have become highly, highly sensitized or hyper responsive. And so mast cells, most people who have ever heard of mast cells um, know them because these are the cells that release histamine during an allergic response. So that's what people, if they've ever heard of mast cells, they know it because it's involved in allergic response. But mast cells, in addition to releasing histamine, they actually release hundreds of chemical mediators. So 
I'll just compare allergies with a mast cell response or mast cell activation response so people get a better sense of the difference. So with an allergy, you get exposed to a sub substance. So that could be like pollen outside or animal dander if you have a pet or maybe you're allergic to a food. And then the mast cells will release histamine and some other compounds. And that's gonna cause like the itchy eyes, the drippy nose, the asthma, the hives, or you know whatever your allergic symptoms are. With mast cell activation, the mast cells, again, they're hypersensitized or responsive, and they can start to react to substances that like any kind of substance. They can also react to sensory input, things like smells or temperature changes. Uh, some people with mast cell activation will even respond to pressure changes. So where I live, we have Chinook. So it's kind of this weather pattern called a Chinook and it, with it comes a change in atmospheric pressure. So some people respond very poorly to that type of change. Uh, sometimes emotional changes can also trigger mast cells. And so again, these cells, they view everyday occurrences as threatening. So they're so sensitive now that anything can be viewed as threatening. And when they perceive something as threatening, they release all of these chemical mediators. And that is what then contributes to that person's collection of symptoms. Now, the symptoms can be so broad ranging and can look really, really different from one person to the next. And the symptom profile, in fact, it can look so different from one person to the next person that it makes it almost impossible to get a diagnosis in the healthcare system where doctors specialize. So I'll give you a little scenario here that I see quite often with some of my clients. So a lot of my clients will have seen a variety of doctors. Again, these would be specialists, people like allergists or rheumatologists or gastroenterologists or hematologists. And that list can go on and on. So often people with MCAS are seeing all of these specialists and they still won't have a diagnosis or anyone who's actually able to connect the dots and identify that it's actually one thing that is related to all of the symptoms they're experiencing. Sometimes I've had clients come to me and they have been told by their doctors that it's all in their head. So that it's hard to really give you a really clear definition because it does look so, so different from person to person, but basically people's mast cells have become very, very sensitized. How do you know if you have it? <laughs> that is a great question. And it's actually a difficult one to answer. So the diagnostic criteria for mast cell activation syndrome was only established in 2012 by the World Health Organization. So many, many doctors don't even know this condition exists because it is a fairly new uh, diagnosis. And there is still not complete consensus 
on uh, the actual um, diagnostic criteria. So when I was diagnosed, um, one of the criteria I think that is agreed on is that you have to have a collection of symptoms and those symptoms have to cross body systems. So typically you will have symptoms from multiple uh, different body systems or different tissues in the body. Now, then testing can get done. And this is where there isn't full consensus. Um, so one of the chemical mediators that mast cells can release is called tryptase. And so this is where doctors don't agree whether like that has to be present or not. But there are, I think it's about eight other chemical mediators that they're looking for. Um, and the testing is also uh, quite sensitive and the blood has to be, so it's a, it's a serum blood test. The blood has to be refrigerated right away and transported um, in a cool refrigerated packaging, because if it's not, then you can get inaccurate results. So again, there's not complete consensus. Uh, right now, um, it's mainly functional medicine doctors that are diagnosing people. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I very, very interestingly, I'm super excited. Actually, I just had a client email me a few days ago, and she's found an immunologist um, in Calgary, the city that I'm in, who recognizes uh, this condition. And so I don't think he, so the testing is private lab testing. So he's a mainstream medical doctor. So he basically just said to my client, he said, we're going to move forward as if you have it. Uh, so that's super exciting. I think more and more doctors are starting to become aware of it. That's always good. Yeah. So what are like the symptoms that people need to look out for? The symptoms are like anything. <laughs> so, so like I said, it can impact any body system. Um, so I'll run through some, some of the symptoms, but it can be just incredibly, incredibly broad. So, um, like I said, it can impact any body system. So skin, there are so many skin conditions that have actually been correlated to mast cell activation syndrome, things like rashes, eczema, uh, rosacea, um, folliculitis where people's uh, follicles can just become sort of infected or inflamed. And sometimes that happens sort of on the upper shoulders or across the top of the back. Um, a lot of respiratory conditions as well. So asthma, I believe there's a 20% correlation with mast cell involvement. Uh, COPD, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So lots of respiratory conditions have mast cell activation involvement. Um, so that's respiratory gut. There's some gut things I would say, particularly IBS. So there is an 11% correlation of IBS to mast cell activation, lots and lots of nervous system uh, symptoms. So if we look at the brain, particularly things like migraine headaches, 
anxiety, depression, and fatigue, those can all be mast cell mediated, um, but also other things in the nervous system. So nerve pain or nerve tingling or numbness, or some people even have like sensations of chilling or burning. So that's all sort of nerve, nervous system related. Um, I talked about my urinary urgency, but there are other symptoms related to urination that are mast cell mediated. So if you need to pee frequently, and actually that's something I can relate to my whole life. I always just thought I had a small bladder, um, but if you need to pee frequently, or maybe you're getting up a lot at night to pee, if it's painful for you to pee, then that can be mast cell um, mediated. Um, there can be a lot of heart uh, conditions as well, or heart symptoms rather. So things like heart palpitations or arrhythmia. Uh, some people even get chest pain. And so pain we see actually across all the body systems, right? So in the head, it can be headaches or migraine, chest pain, uh, abdominal pain, joint pain, muscle pain. Pain is one of the symptoms um, that is very, very broad ranging with mast cell activation. Um, oh, you know, there's a couple of skin things that I think um, are worth mentioning because these are ones that I think people can really relate to. If you're that person who gets a bug bite and you have a stronger reaction to bug bites than most people do, that can be an indication that mast cells are a little bit hyper-responsive. Uh, if you are the person who gets flushed in your face when you're embarrassed or when you consume alcohol, that is a sign that mast cells are um, involved in the skin. And then there's something called dermatographism. And dermatographism is if you uh, get rubbing on your skin, or even if you were to take like a blunt object, like maybe a popsicle stick, or even if your fingernails aren't very sharp and just scratch the inside of your forearm, just with moderate, like you're not trying to actually damage your skin, but with moderate pressure, if you get a white line or a pink line that appears and it lingers, some people will even get a welt that lingers and that, whether it's a pink line or a white line or a welt that lingers with like um, pressure or rubbing on the skin, that's known as dermatographism. And it is highly correlated uh, with mast cell sensitization in the skin. So that's a really good indicator. Not everybody with mast cell activation has that dermatographism, but most people do. So that's some of the symptoms. <laughs> it's quite a lot of symptoms. It is, it's like everything. It's seriously everything ever. <laughs> What is histamine intolerance? Mm, that's a good question. So histamine intolerance and mast cell activation syndrome can actually look very, very similar. So all of the symptoms that I just talked about can be uh, part of either mast cell activation syndrome or histamine intolerance. And histamine intolerance, some people consider it a subset of uh, mast cell activation. Others consider it a standalone condition. You can have both as well. So on its own, histamine intolerance is when the body 
isn't able to break down and clear histamine at the same rate that it's coming into the body. So histamine, we, we need histamine. It is super, super important for about 23 different bodily functions. It acts as a neurotransmitter. It helps with wound healing. It helps with um, smooth muscle contraction. So like gut motility. So it's super important, but we also have to be able to clear it from the body when we're done using it. So it comes into the body through the food we eat. It is made by some of the microbes in the gut microbiome. And then it can be released from the mast cells that we've been talking about as well as some other um, immune cells. So it's coming into the body, it's stored in the body. And then, like I said, it has to get broken down and cleared. So there are two key enzymes that are involved in breaking down histamine. One is called diamine oxidase, it's DAO for short. And the other one is called histamine M-methyltransferase, which is HNMT for short. So the DAO, this enzyme is made in the gut and it breaks down histamine that is coming from food or histamine that is being made by the gut microbes. So the DAO is very, very gut specific. And then the HNMT, it does most of its work in the liver. So the liver is kind of our main detox organ. Uh, so that's where it's doing most of it of its work. It does do some work in other tissue uh, in the brain, um, but most of it it's doing in the liver, and that's where it's sort of metabolizing the histamine that you know has done its job and needs to be cleared out of the body. So for people who have histamine intolerance, uh, often they have low amounts of these enzymes, or they have high amounts of histamine uh, coming from like the microbes in their gut. So there's a term that um, a colleague and I have coined, we call it the HIHO principle. So that's an acronym, it's H-I-H-O. So the H-I stands for histamine in and the H-O stands for histamine out. So basically with this principle, it's the idea that if histamine coming in equals the histamine that's moving out, that's being cleared by the liver, then you won't have symptoms. But if the histamine that's coming in, maybe from your diet or again, from those microbes in your gut, if that's higher than your body's ability to clear out histamine, then you will have symptoms. Um, now, histamine intolerance, it's called an intolerance, but that's not an accurate description. It is really more the case that you can't clear out histamine at the same rate that it's coming into your body. So that's what histamine intolerance is. Like I said, same symptom profile, but it's a bit of a different mechanism. Interesting. How do these um, conditions contribute to pain? Okay, yeah. So pain, we can see with both uh, mast cell activation and histamine intolerance. And again, like I said, the symptom profile can look um, identical. Um, so pain, basically what's happening um, is that the mast cells can be drivers of pain. So 
some of the examples of pain, I think we've touched on, but I'll just recap them. So you can have muscle pain, you could have nerve pain, chest pain, menstrual pain in women is a big one, uh, bladder pain. And in fact, there's a condition called interstitial cystitis that involves a lot of bladder and pelvic pain, gut pain, again, headaches or migraines, even TMJ pain. A lot of people with these conditions have uh, jaw issues. And so mast cell activation is really a driver of chronic pain. It is uh, signaling and sensitizing nerves. So imagine a nice little conversation between mast cells and nerves. So mast cells and nerves, they actually like to hang out together. Mast cells will actually travel to where nerves are. So they're hanging out together and they actually talk to one another. So in the research literature, this is called crosstalk. And so basically when they are cross-talking, the mast cells and the nerves, they're releasing chemicals to communicate to one another. And so it's totally normal for them to be doing this cross-talking. But what happens with mast cell activation syndrome, so again, the mast cells are highly sensitized. So they're sending out chemical mediators all the time. And that in turn sensitizes the nerves because they're talking to the nerves and they're basically telling the nerves to ramp up that pain signal. And then the nerves in turn, they communicate that same information back to mast cells. They then send out chemical mediators telling the mast cells to keep releasing their chemicals. So it becomes this really vicious cycle where nerves neurons and mast cells are telling each other to send out more inflammatory uh, mediators. And it's kind of like that chicken and egg scenario. We're not always sure which came first, whether the nerves were sensitized first or the mast cells sensitized first, but it becomes this vicious cycle of pain where the mast cells and the nerves are doing this crosstalk and perpetuating the sensitization of each other. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, that was when I started digging into that research, that was like a huge light bulb moment for me. Well, how do you get these conditions? <laughs> okay. So <laughs> histamine intolerance, I'm going to start with that because that one's a little bit simpler to explain. Well, maybe not, but <laughs> histamine intolerance, it can actually be genetic. So you can be genetically, you may be a poor producer of the diamine oxidase enzyme or the histamine and methyltransferase enzyme. So that just means then you can't make enough enzymes to break down histamine in the body. So there is that possible genetic component. Um, then with the uh, DAO specifically, there's another factor. So diamine oxidase is produced in the gut lining. And so if you have leaky gut, where the lining of your GI tract is damaged, then you're not able to make that diamine oxidase enzyme adequately. So then that's another way 
where you can just have low amounts of the enzyme. So gut health is really, really important. Um, so that's from the enzyme perspective, you can be low in those enzymes for histamine intolerance, but then you could also have um, a microbial imbalance in the gut where you have too many microbes that are producing histamine, or maybe you just happen to be eating foods that are high in histamine. So that's kind of with histamine intolerance, why you can have it. Um, with mast cell activation syndrome, there, so there's two types of mast cell activation. One is called a primary mast cell activation syndrome and the other is secondary. So the primary one is usually from uh, birth or very early on in life. And it seems to be, uh, from what I've been able to figure out, mostly related to uh, some kind of trauma. Um, and that can be like in, in the case of my story, I talked about like the birth trauma of being separated from my mom. Um, it could be from, you know, just a difficult labor. And there's also something called transgenerational trauma. Sometimes we see that it's actually trauma from past generations that are the, the symptoms are manifesting themselves, um, in this individual. So the trauma can also come from past generations. With secondary mast cell activation, um, we see things like infection. And so things like Lyme disease or SIBO, uh, some of these infections can trigger the secondary. So with the secondary mast cell activation, if people are able to identify what the trigger was, then they are usually able to reverse that mast cell activation, uh, much more complicated and difficult to do with the primary uh, form of mast cell activation. Hmm. So how does this relate to fibromyalgia? Oh, excellent question. So, um, I mean, you've heard me talk about all of the different symptoms that can be part of mast cell activation. So if we look at some of the symptoms of mast cell activation that overlap with fibromyalgia, we see that things like poor sleep, uh, fatigue, muscle pain, brain fog, depression and anxiety, those would all be symptoms that we see in both mast cell activation and fibromyalgia. And the research literature actually supports the involvement of mast cells in fibromyalgia. There is just a brilliant uh, mast cell researcher, his name is Dr. Theo Harrods. And he has looked at the role of mast cells in the pathogenesis of a lot of conditions, including fibromyalgia. And some of the other conditions he's looked at are mast cell involvement in chronic fatigue, interstitial cystitis, chemical sensitivities, allergies, asthma, autism. So he's looked at, so we know mast cells are involved in a very uh, broad range of health conditions. And interestingly, often these conditions are comorbid, right? So you might have fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia and IBS or fibromyalgia and asthma. And 
So I think the question I want to put forth to your listeners is that if you have fibromyalgia and maybe you have some other diagnosis as well, are those conditions actually separate conditions or is it possible that they are all different manifestations of the same condition? Is it possible that your mast cells are active or activated and hypersensitive resulting in all of these different diagnoses? Exactly. Big question to put out there to your listeners. (laughs) It's a big question. Um, What would be like some tips people could follow right away to help? Yeah. So there are some simple things. Um, The first tip I would say is eat food as fresh as possible. I can't emphasize freshness enough. Food, uh, the longer it sits, you know, the longer it's being transported, the older the food is, the more likely it is to have higher histamine levels. And so I know we've talked about histamine in relation to histamine intolerance, how your body's not necessarily as able to clear it out. But histamine, um, in addition to mast cells releasing histamine, they are actually also triggered by histamine. So they have histamine receptors on their membranes. So histamine can actually trigger that mast cell activation as well. So eating fresh so that you reduce histamine in food is the number one tip. So if you're eating fruits and vegetables, choose stuff that's in season and frozen stuff is actually a really, really good option from a histamine perspective. So if stuff is not in season, I would highly encourage people to choose frozen. Meat gets really tricky uh, from a histamine perspective because it very, very rapidly forms histamine. So if we're talking about eating fresh in relation to meat and fish, it has to be frozen right after slaughter to minimize histamine formation. So this is actually pretty challenging to get meat or fish that's frozen right after slaughter or right after the catch. This usually means connecting with local farmers or um, sometimes finding a community supported fishery. I know in the States, I think it's called Vital, is it Vital Choice? Um, There's a fishery and they freeze their fish right away. In Western Canada, we have one called Skipper Auto. So really important again, to get um, meat or fish that's been frozen right after slaughter. And beef is really high in histamine as is anything else that gets hung. Beef has to be hung and it's aged. It's actually totally not edible if it doesn't go through that process. But in that process, it develops a lot of histamine. So beef is not a good um, choice. So that's my eat fresh. Like that's my number one tip. The second thing is anytime you have leftovers, so you've just cooked a beautiful meal. Anytime you have leftovers, don't keep them in the fridge, but put them in the freezer right away. Once food is cooked, it will rapidly form histamine. And so freezing is the only thing that stops that formation of histamine. So if you want to batch cook so that, you know, you've got food to get you through the week, that is such a good strategy, but just make sure 
that it goes into the freezer, into serving sizes. Uh, so we've got number one is eat fresh. Number two is freeze your leftovers right away. And then the third tip is actually to replace some of the high histamine foods. And so I'll tell you what some of the, the healthy high histamine foods are, because these are foods that are kind of trending and people are People who are trying to be healthy are very cognizant usually of, of trying to consume these foods. So here's a few high histamine foods. His, uh, spinach is really high in histamine. And a lot of people are tossing spinach into their daily smoothies or their daily salads. Tomato is high in histamine. And so again, a lot of people consume a lot of tomato, right? It's, it's talked about as having high lycopene, bone broth. So, so many people are on the bone broth wagon because it is great for gut health. It's great for skin, right? Such a good source of collagen, but it is also really high in histamine as is avocado, which is really, you know, if you're keto or paleo or anyone trying to get healthy fats, you're probably eating avocado, but it's also high histamine. All the citrus fruits are high in histamine. And again, you know, people who are trying to be healthy are often consuming those. Bacon, so, you know, a traditionally cultured uh, bacon is part of keto, paleo, right? That's super high histamine, as is any other meat that is aged or processed. Pineapple is really high. Chocolate, who doesn't love chocolate? It's high in histamine. And here's the other really big one, fermented and cultured foods. So again, this is one, like if anybody's heard anything about gut health, they're like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna eat my yogurt and my kefir and sauerkraut and kombucha. All of these foods are very high in histamine. So this I think is one of the areas where, you know, people who are trying, and this was me, right? This, I was on a GAPS diet, which is a gut restorative diet. And I actually didn't do the bone broth. I did a meat stock, which is much lower in histamine, but here I was, I was going crazy with the fermented foods. I was making my own yogurt and kefir, and I was culturing like every vegetable you can possibly imagine. I had a cupboard full of like cultured asparagus and radishes and, you know, the traditional sauerkraut, but basically any vegetable I could culture, I was doing that. And that's when I was seeing the urinary urgency and the nerve tingling uh, symptoms emerge. So like, I'll just give you some quick replacement ideas, but if you're eating a lot of spinach, just swap it out with arugula. Arugula is low histamine. If you're using tomato, so say you're using, um, you know, tomato sauces for things like pasta and pizza, do uh, like a pureed butternut squash instead. Uh, if you're doing a bone broth, I would suggest switching to a meat stock. Um, avocado is a tough one to replace, but just replace it with other healthy fats. Citrus is actually quite difficult because citrus we often use to get that sour note in foods, right? We're using it um, in like dressings or other dishes for that sour note. Um, and this might sound a little bit weird, but just try a little bit of cream of tartar instead. So you can like mix that into a salad dressing or into a dish and it gives that sour note. Instead of bacon, do a pork belly. So, you know, something that just hasn't been uh, cured. 
instead of chocolate, try a white chocolate. So get some nice cocoa butter and uh, make some treats with that. So those are my three tips. Eat fresh, freeze leftovers, and then replace some of those high histamine foods with alternatives that are lower histamine. Those are great tips. That will definitely help my audience. <laughs> um, where can everyone find you? So I actually have two websites. Um, I have tracyreed.ca. So that's um, kind of my first website. But then more recently, I have embarked on a project with a colleague of mine. Her name is Luca Simmons. And so she, like myself, she hasn't been diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome, but she is quite sure she has it. She definitely has the symptom profile and has benefited um, from a low histamine diet. And so we together have created a website. It is called histaminehaven.com. And so we've been working really, really hard over the last year and a half uh, to create some resources. Um, if you remember when I was talking about working with clients, I, I kind of knew there weren't any good resources. And so we really wanted to put something together that was um, very comprehensive, was very science-based. So all of our diet, uh, that the, the diet that we have developed, the protocol we have developed is backed by science. And so we have the website histaminehaven.com. We have written a book uh, that is going to be a comprehensive guide. So it's a cookbook and a guidebook in one. Um, we have submitted to a publishing company and hopefully by the time this is aired, um, the publishing company will have responded to us. <laughs> <laughs> and then on our website, there's great resources there for people to get started with if they want to. Uh, we have our food list uh, to get started. We call it our shopping list. We have a list of symptoms. So I've talked about a lot of symptoms today, but if people want to have a more comprehensive look at a symptom list, we have a free downloadable symptom list. Uh, we have a tracking sheet on there as well. So people can kind of try um, a low histamine diet. And then, I mean, our, our diet's more than low histamine because it, it's also gut supportive and immune regulating, but they can um, see if they can track their, their symptoms with that tracking sheet. We've got lists of books and websites and lab tests that you might want to talk to your doctor about, suppliers of supplements and some of the foods, how to find a doctor that can help. Uh, we also have blog articles that come out weekly. And um, we are also in the process of developing an online program. And so by the time your listeners are hearing this, that program may already be available. If not, it will be available soon. And then we're also on Facebook and Instagram. So our handle is Histamine Haven. And so we're posting stuff all the time to, again, just try to educate and help people who are dealing with these symptom profiles or who know they've been diagnosed with either histamine intolerance or mast cell activation syndrome. Wow. That's a lot of resources, but that's great. Yeah. We, like I said, it's, it's, it's lacking right now. Um, it's starting to come. I'm seeing other practitioners who are starting to kind of expand on this as well. 
but we just really felt that a good cookbook and also a guidebook that kind of talks people through some of the other steps that they need to do in addition to diet, that it was very, very much needed. That's great. I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Like I said, I, I am so excited to just educate people on this and share this topic because I think there are so many people out there who uh, are not getting the right diagnosis, who are seeing tons of different doctors are being put on all kinds of pharmaceuticals and the pharmaceuticals are managing their symptoms, but nobody is actually helping them to address why they have those symptoms. And that's what we want to do is get people back to feeling well again. Yes. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you again. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much, Amanda.